Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, welcome back to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. But that was one big lie because I am not Terry Wickstrom. I'm Chad Lachance. I'm filling in for Terry, who's fishing in Minnesota right now. I know that's a big hardship, but uh, but he did give me the opportunity to fill in. And I don't want to take any more time to listen to me blab because one of my favorite guys is on hold right now, and that's Mr. Dan Spangler. He's the hard bait development manager for Berkeley. Uh, a guy that's very important because about three-quarters of the lures I throw, he's designed. Good morning, Dan. Hey, what's going on, Chad? Well, I wish I was fishing. Uh, a box of a couple of Chapo 75s showed up at my house last night, and uh, and they will be on the end of a line here as soon as I get off the radio. And that's where they should be, too. <laughs> so, Dan, for, for people that aren't familiar, I'm going to give them 20 seconds of background. You have a degree in fisheries biology. You have a minor in botany. You love to fish more than any person ought to. And for the last decade or more, you've been a lure designer at, at Berkeley. Um, right. That's a pretty su- substantial resume. I've fished with you, and I know you're a fisherman at a high level. We filmed uh, several TV shows together last year, and I hope to do it again. But I don't think people realize how much time and work and everything goes into bringing a lure to market. And so let's use one that I think both of us are familiar with. For obviously you are, you designed it, but our, our viewers are probably, our listeners are probably li- familiar with. And that's the Hit Stick, the Berkeley Hit Stick that came out last year. Um, how does that start? Where does the start of you know a Hit Stick working working backwards? Where does that whole situation start? Where's the idea for the lure come from? Well, essentially with the hit stick, <clears throat> that was a that was a project that actually took the greater part of my 10-plus years being at, at Berkeley or Pier Fishing. Um, it started when I first came in the door. Um, we were working on the Flicker projects with Gary Parsons and Keith Cavias, and we had always talked about doing a shallow minnow bait to go after balsam minnows but in plastic that would be able to do things that those baits couldn't particularly do. So, um, you know, working on and off on it through that 10 year period, I really dove in about three years prior to the bait launching. And that's where really the meat and potatoes work took place. Um, we had, had developed countless prototypes, hundreds of prototypes and, uh, prior to that and we could not get the balsa action someone told me when i first came in the door that you know it was almost impossible to get balsa action in in a plastic bait so i took that as kind of a challenge so i really dug in those three years and we finally cracked the code on the number nine we started with the number nine size because that's kind of a market standard and it took over 30 prototypes just once we got the body design and we figured out the flash disc technology so the key with the bait that we ended up figuring out was a thin, lightweight plastic shell paired with the flash disc technology, a low center of gravity weighting system, plus a couple other things in our knowledge and background base on lure action. We've, we've had lures that we've analyzed and developed for over 20 years. We have them in books, all the research and data, it's, it's in databases. So building upon that and, and integrating it into that particular mineral style bait. 
Well, having been to the uh, Berkeley Research Facility myself, uh, talk about a kid in a candy store. I could have spent weeks in there. Um, that place is amazing. But one of the things you can do is put a lure in a flow tank, which basically simulates it being trolled, so to speak, and you can film yep. it, and you can then analyze that motion. So you you can right. say, okay, this is a proven motion. We know this one gets bites, uh, and then try to mimic it the other way around, starting with CAD design stuff. Uh, we spent some time in the office you have a cohort, and I can't remember her name, and I apologize. Kelly. Yep. Kelly. Uh, we spent some time in her office looking at, uh, I think we were looking at the Chapo that particular day, but analyzing yep. the motion in a computer, and then you can either 3D print, uh, you have CNC molds all right there at, at your disposal. The 3D printer allows you to churn out prototypes in a hurry. Right. Yep. So, and, and I'm involved every, everywhere from the initial concept all the way to shelf, uh, but really the big fun part for me is is we're building the prototypes. I build the actual prototypes with Kelly, and um, she prints them, and I'll assemble them. Uh, we design them together. Um, but what what a lot of people don't realize is countless prototypes, um, countless prototypes we analyze in our flow tank system. And, again, you, you mentioned taking the video, the slow-motion video analysis. I can actually dial in specific actions for each prototype. So, I use it as a filtering system. So we have this flow tank. I'll put it in the standardized position, standardized flow rate, all this stuff. Um, everything's very scientific, and I'll put number IDs on every single prototype that we develop. Now, the prototype can have just internal weight changes where it's the same body, bill configuration, all that, just internal changes. Or I can change things such as bill angles and things as small as one to two degree increments. Um, and I can analyze test these prototypes, put the ID numbers on them. Each ID prototype has a specific action. They are different. And then we'll take them out to the field, and our field tests usually last between one to two years. We'll go on a variety of different lakes. You don't want it just to be a one-hit wonder and do great at a lake once and say, this is good. You know, we want to test its effectiveness on several bodies of water throughout the year, and uh, we'll let the best prototype win. So it's a filtering system, and actually we let the fish have the final say and we usually try to outcompete our target competitor, usually three to one catch rates. And bite rates. Well, I can tell you as a guy that's been fortunate enough to test a lot of those lures for you, you guys ship them out to anglers around the country who who you trust and who you can communicate with, and those anglers will then put them to work on their water. I happen to be lucky enough to be one of those guys. Uh, I can tell you that Black Chapo number eight absolutely catches them <laughs> for real. Uh, but jokes aside, for me, when that lure comes in, or when those lures, you'll send me a couple of them. Uh, I look at them for multi-species as well. Like, okay, this might be designed for bass, but if it'll catch everybody, I know it's it's a good bait. The other thing we're looking at in that situation is real-world durability. Like you mentioned balsa. Balsa's great until the first time you cast it long and it hits the riprap and breaks it. Uh, whereas your plastic bait's more durable and more present, more uh, duplicatable. Uh, all two, all of them are the same. Those kind of things are stuff that the field test field guys like me can test. And I know you do a tremendous amount of that as well because you're surrounded by great places to fish. Right. I'm actually up in South Dakota right now. I'm going field testing tomorrow. So field testing. <laughs> there you go. I like the sound of that. That sounds really good. Yep. Now, um, how much pride do you get as a, as a, as a scientist? I assume you consider yourself a scientist or a researcher. It's got to be a tremendous amount of pride to take a bait that, that, that you had a hand in or a major hand in as a development manager, um, and, and put, put that thing in a fish's mouth. Right. I mean, there's nothing greater or more re rewarding for an experience of catching a fish on a lure that you designed or developed. Um, and it, it's truly 
that feeling is just awesome to catch fish yourself. But not only that, I, I want to build the best baits out there so that everybody who buys our baits can go and have a successful trip all the way from kids to the weekend angler to the, the high hardcore tournament pro. That is the ultimate goal. So that's why we focus a lot of our prototyping on catch rates, performance, and ultimately having the fish have the final say where you have high catch rates. So if you if you do these things and you work it into the system and use that scientific foundation and research built approach, you can create baits that outperform others based off you know actions and lure um, you know motion kinematics. So essentially, you're building almost a super lure and a hard bait, and ultimately the angler has that reward by catching more fish. Well, yes, and one of the key things, the hallmarks of any good baits that I look at is are they consistent out of the package? And that's one thing that that basically since about, what, 2015, I think, the hard bait program was revamped at, at Berkeley. Yeah. Um, yep. Major, major uh, upgrades, more fundamentally high-performing baits started coming out um, instead of any kind of gimmicky stuff or anything like that. Now the the, the selection of hard baits that, that Berkeley's come out with uh, and the amount, the level of the pro staff that are that are using them has come up a tremendous amount. Things like the new Berkeley Stunna, I mean, that's a very high-quality, mm-hmm. high-performing jerkbait at an affordable price. Uh, you know, the Chapo, the Hit Stick, uh, there's a lot of them that are – that are very high-performing baits that I think folks, and, and the key for me is they all work the same right out of the package. I tie it on. I don't right. have to tune it. I don't have to be an expert on crankbait tuning to, to make this bait run. I can throw it, and it's going to work every time, and that's really important. Well, and then that's the thing, too. With, with every bait that I develop, I want to think about versatility. I want it to be a bait that you can do a lot of different things with, not just one-dimensional. I want, like the hit stick. You know, we started out with just a, a, a minnow that would go after a, a basically a balsa bait that you just cast straight, retrieve, and troll. But I wanted it to be the ultimate jerk bait. So I actually tilted the bill angle forward, and that allows the bait to dart. It, it, it goes through the water a little bit easy. It's more hydrodynamic. So it'll dart left and right um, all the way. You know, the 7, the 9, um, the 11, and the, the 13 are absolutely amazing, very overlooked jerk baits, in my opinion. Yeah, extremely versatile. And since I'm in Colorado, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it, um, the nine and the eleven are absolutely killer trout baits. Uh, if if you're a guy that wants to throw hard plugs in, in the river or, or in a place like North Park or South Park, they are absolutely killer baits for that. Um, I have personally put them through the ringer there, and I know that that's a that bait will put, produce a tremendous amount of bites. Ironically, the very first cast I ever made with a number nine hit stick, I made in the Laramie River and got choked by a brown trout, and I knew that was a good sign. I lobbed it across the river, pulled it tight, bounced the rod tip about three times, and there was a brown on it. And, uh, and I knew that was going to be a good sign uh all the way around um the newest one the chapo 75 you guys just got that thing out and um it's a little tiny baby uh top water bait I, a lot of guys aren't going to be familiar with that that little tiny one but uh i suspect that that's going to be another closet bait for a lot of different species from pike and trout and of course the, the bass they were designed for white bass as well uh how's that work been bait working for you uh, well, I'll tell you what, it's my favorite topwater bait of all time now. And the short time I'm, <laughs> that I fished it, but you know, my, my favorite probably up to this point was the 90 and, you know, my success on small mouth and large mouth with that bait, um, out here in the Dakotas and in Iowa, but the 75, it's, it's a more robust, compact body size. 
Um, so it's a little fatter, a little more squatty. It's got the same chopping tail as the 90. I wanted it to have the same water disturbance essentially as the 90, which is a fantastic fish catcher. Um, I wanted it to track perfectly straight. So we have a lot of weight in there and I wanted to cast a mile. I think it's probably, I think it outcasts the 90 personally, um, because it's so compact, but then the other great thing, it's the smallmouth king for that particular Chapo series, because the hooks are positioned a little closer together. Great for fish that have smaller mouths, like a small mouth. Um, the hookup ratio is really good on that bait. Um, I'm, I'm super proud of that bait and it's catching a lot of big small mouth, almost the six pounds. So, well, and, and I know when, when we filmed with you last year, uh, we caught them over five pounds, a couple of them over five pounds, and uh, and the fishing went exactly like you told us they would, and that was that was fantastic. That's a hallmark of a guy that knows what's going on. Quickly, if a guy wants to learn more about you, because I know you do presentations and things back in Iowa, uh, how would they do so? Yep. Well, you can follow me on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, uh, just Dan Spangler, and then Instagram, Dan Spangler 84 So I have those two social media accounts, and I post a lot about sneak peeks on product and you know, just, hey, going out and fishing this product, this is what you can expect. So, Well, I appreciate that, guys. Look up Mr. Spangler. He is a great guy, a wealth of knowledge, and one of my favorite guys to fish with. Dan, we hope to get you on Fishful Thinker Television here again pretty soon, and I appreciate you taking time out of your fishing day there in South Dakota to call us in. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. That's Dan Spangler from Berkeley, an incredibly intelligent guy and a really good uh, resource for anglers. And uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. All right, welcome back to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. I'm Chad Lachance, and I'm filling in for Terry Wickstrom, and I'm really happy to be doing so. It's September. We've got a lot of hunting stuff going on in Colorado right now. We've got everything from archery and muzzleloader open today. Uh, we've got small game going on, and uh, and I'm sitting on a bear tag right now, so it's definitely that time of year, and the fishing's still good. But there's a guy we should talk to because you can't be a hunter or a fisherman without knowing a few things about your outdoor tools. And with that, we're joined by Will Morgan from Outdoor Edge Knives and Tools, which is a Denver company. Good morning, Will. Hey, good morning, Chad. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for taking the time to call in. Now, Outdoor Edge is a company you work for. Uh, they're based here in Denver, uh, designed exclusively tools and specifically knives for outdoorsmen, everything from everyday carry to fillet knives to home processing kits. Uh, I, I assume that puts you in a position to understand what's going on, but are you an outdoorsman yourself as well? Oh yes, absolutely. Been a you know lifelong you know hunter and fisherman growing up in northern Wisconsin, and then uh, moving out to Colorado in 2007. Shortly after after graduating, and been lucky enough to be in the outdoor industry. You know, my entire professional career from a fly fishing guide now to the marketing director for Outdoor Edge. Well, you're a fun guy to work with. (laughs) Uh, Well, we know you live it, and that was kind of a baited question because I know you and I have talked at length about everything from mountain goat hunting and bear hunting to all sorts of fishing stuff. Um, Let's start with the basics. A guy has got to have a a guy that's in the field. You have to be able to field dress your big game. We'll start with big game. Uh, It has to happen. It has to happen quick. I mean, these days, this time of year, it's warm out. uh, Really important that you be efficient in the field. Now, I personally, I'm going to throw out what I carry as my day in and day out deer hunting, elk hunting, antelope hunting that's in my backpack, in my pocket all the time. 
the one I carry, the combo I carry is a Razor Pro saw combo. And the key to that is it's got a replaceable blade, so I don't have to sharpen it. It's easier and quicker for me to carry a couple of blades than it is to carry a sharpening stone and take time in the field with a dirty knife. Uh, I can quickly have a brand new razor blade in about three seconds with that thing. Plus, I have the saw. Uh, plus I have a way to open the hide without uh, damaging the membranes that protect the entrails with the with the uh, zipper. And all the way around, that's a great combo. What's your thoughts on that combo? Yeah, I mean, you know, let's look at it this way. No matter what kind of knife you have, it's going to get dull. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. You know, it's, uh, it's September. It's hot. Um, time is, is key when breaking down your animal and getting it cooled down as quickly as possible. So the, uh, the replaceable blade knives that, that we've developed, you know, you really can't go wrong. Um, that, that Razor Pro that you were mentioned there is a great knife. It's a double blade folder, so it has a three-and-a-half-inch drop point blade. But then it also has our signature gutting blade um, that, that works tremendously well. Um, one of my favorites that I carry exclusively in the field is our Razor Bone. Now, that is a, a five-inch folding blade. Um, replaceable blade knife, but it also accepts three and a half inch drop point blade as well as a gutting hook blade um, to, you know, once again, open up the animal, cool it down, break it down into the desirable pieces to, you know, whether you're dragging it back to your truck or, or packing it out of the, out of the back country on your back, you know, having that, that sharp knife is absolutely, you know, it is key, whether whether it's September or late hunt in November. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, we're food hunters first and foremost. And, yeah, I might want to go shoot a giant buck. Don't get me wrong. And I'm going to look at those antlers for the rest of my life. But I'm going to eat every edible portion of that deer. I don't care if it's a 10-year-old rutted-up mule deer buck or a, or a yearling. Uh, the food value is important. And there's no better way to protect the food value than to get the meat cooled and get it clean as soon as possible. And the efficient tools help with that. The gutting hooks that you're talking about, either the, the hook or the or – the, uh, the, the gutting blade that I that I prefer so important because you keep the stuff you don't want on the meat in the deer and uh, and that can be really important. Uh, real quick, we'll talk about replaceable blades versus fixed blades. In my opinion, the replaceable blades are noticeably better because they are just so much quicker and more efficient. I can still sharpen it if I need to. I can touch it up on a stone if I need to, but the reality is I carry the blades in the grand scheme of the cost of the blades in a, in a hunting trip. It's, it's nominal, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're looking at anywhere between 75 cents to a dollar a blade on average. Um, and, and like you said, you know, you, you can touch them up. You can get a lot of life out of them. For example, last year, um, my buddy and I, we, we were fortunate enough to take two bulls back-to-back days, and I don't think I used more than three blades combined for breaking down both of those animals. Uh, you know, I would just kind of touch it up occasionally on our X, Edge X sharpener. It's got a little ceramic stone that you pull through. Um, just keeps that edge nice and straight. So, you know, that, yeah, the, the replaceable blade knives are – they're tough to beat, but, you know, we also have developed and carry a full line of more traditional style, you know, fixed blade knives for the, for the people that, you know, they want the sturdiness, they want that, uh, the traditional, you know, hunting knife, um, which we sell a lot of those as well. And another one of the classics is our swing blade, which right. is a rotating fixed blade knife, if you will. It has a drop point blade, but the blade will also rotate to our signature gutting hook. And, um, you know, before we came out with replaceable blades, that was my go-to knife that I would always carry. And 
you know, kind of the, the knife that I would gift out to people as well, because it was so, so practical um, for, you know, breaking down animals and really only, only needing that one knife in your arsenal in, in the woods. Well, but and that's also then, my previous knife. I carried that and a flip yeah. and zip saw, and that's what I carried. Yeah. But once I once I t- turned on a replaceable blades, it's hard to go back. Um, they're just so convenient, so so sharp, um, you know. And I generally can get a full deer or deer and a half out of one blade without a lot of problem. I'm careful, obviously, not to stick it in the dirt or anything like that. But uh, I'm I'm careful with that. Now, before we get going too much and run out of time, a big trend these days is guys that want to process their own stuff at home let's say i got home with a deer um there's a bajillion videos on how to do it uh how to take them apart um you guys offer a couple of kits for that as well yeah we do we have we have a series of hard-sided game processing kits um from you know a three knife up to you know our game pro that has you know four separate blades and um, everything you need to break down an animal. So kind of depending on where you are in your own personal experience of home processing, we definitely have have tools and, and complete kits for that. But I know a lot of people that they still use the replaceable blade knives in the kitchen as well, whether they're breaking down a game. And you know, I talk to a lot of guys that uh, that smoke a lot of brisket and they love the five inch bowling blade for you know, for cleaning up their briskets for competition, you know, barbecues as well. So um, you don't always need to rely on our on our full game processing sets. Um, and the replaceable blade knives work equally as well in the field and in the kitchen. Um, and some of our smaller ones are, are tremendous everyday carry knives for cutting open boxes. And um, whenever whenever you need a nice sharp knife at a you know, flick of a flick of the wrist, you, you got it right there in your pocket. Yeah, I carry an EDC in my truck all the time, uh, just for the record. And and because I'm a fisherman, I'd be remiss if we didn't uh, talk about the fact that Outdoor Edge doesn't just do hunting. You do fishing stuff for the very same reasons that all of the replaceable blades we've talked about, the incredible sharpness and, and replaceability and ease of use and all that, are also now available in uh, longer versions for filleting fish. Uh, why don't you give us a quick rundown on those? Yeah, so we, we have our real flex fillet knives, which are just more your traditional, um, high quality, you know, professional grade fillet knives. We have those in three different sizes, um, but we also have come out with a folding replaceable blade fillet knife as well, um, based on our same razor safe replaceable blade system. It's lightweight, uh, extremely sharp. The, the flexibility of the blade, you know, the feedback we get from from anglers of all sorts really really love the uh, the flex on on the replaceable blade, but also once again just the, the sharpness. Um, you know, you don't leave really any meat left on the fish carcass when you're when you're done with um, the fillet job. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those are all great points. As time goes on, I, I gravitate more and more and more to the replaceable bladed knives for all the reasons you say, and that includes filleting fish. Uh, you want to do a clean fillet job, a, 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 a thin, ridiculously sharp replaceable blade like that's a way to go. So if a guy wants to get more information on Outdoor Edge, that's at OutdoorEdge.com. You guys are a Denver-based company, lifelong hunters. I've been to the been to your place there uh seeing how the whole thing goes down i think it's it's fantastic what you guys are doing they're affordable as well and you can get them all over the all over the country so will i appreciate you taking time one of these days we got to get in the boat you come with me we'll fillet some walleyes i i would love it i just got to free up the schedule and we'll make it happen uh, let, let's get a date in the calendar next spring but yeah if you guys um out there check us out outdoor um, as Chad mentioned, we do have a lot of resources as well for, for processing game, um, as well on our YouTube channel. We have some great how-to videos as well 
for anybody looking for some new tips and techniques on, on breaking down games. But well, thanks again for having me on, Chad. Well, I appreciate it very much, Will, and you have a fine afternoon. Uh, you do the same. Take care. That's Will Morgan with Outdoor Edge. And with that, we're going to step aside, take a quick break. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. All right. Welcome back to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. But Terry is not here. Terry's fishing in Minnesota. I'm Chad Lachance. I'm hosting the show while he's away and traveling. Hopefully he's chasing some big walleyes today. And a guy that I saw on social media not too long ago eating some walleyes, I believe, from up in Canada, who's a very buggy guy. This guy is a car guy who was born with a bamboo fly rod and silk line and a dry fly on the end of it. He was born with that in his hand. It's the bug guy, <laughs> Mr. Robert Younghands. Good morning, Robert. Chad, it's so great to talk to you again, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic, and I missed you, bud. I haven't talked to you in a long time. Of course, you were a guest on Fishful Thinker Television in the past. We had a great time with that. Uh, you're yeah. known as the bug guy, and um, and people might know you from the International Sportsman's Exposition. You've, you know, uh, sure. you're typically the guy with the live bugs there that everyone wants to play with. Um, sure. First of all, where do you live? You know, I'm actually just in the foothills above Colorado Springs in Florissant. So next, you know, close to close to Woodland Park. I'm about uh, six miles from 11 Mile Canyon, which is a pretty nice uh, uh, geographical location if you're a, a fly fisherman. So that's uh, it's a good it's a good spot and it's beautiful living up here. Well, yeah, and the reason I was asking that was to get a, a gauge on what your weather has been so far. Um, you know, I want to talk about fall hatches because, yeah, we've talked a lot about hunting and stuff, and we've talked a little bit about some other, other fishing stuff, but the reality is uh, this is a fantastic time of year to be a fly fisherman in general, and uh, the, for the most part, the flows are, are in check. Water's relatively clear in a lot of places. I was up, uh, looked at the Colorado River last weekend, also looked at Poudre Canyon. Both of them look beautiful, guys fishing all of them. Um, as a fly fisherman, what are my key, what are my most key bugs, say for the next month? Uh, what are my most key bugs? Well, um, you know, Chad, I'll, I'll answer that in a roundabout way. One of the, one of the things that I always tell people I'm either guiding or my students or in my guide school is to be an observer. And, you know, as much as we try to make, um, entomology and studying bugs, a exact science, you know, Chad, the number one dictator of what happens in an aquatic ecosystem is temperature. And that's as far as hatches and emergences and things like that. So temperature, flows, bottom release dams, runoffs. And so while there are times that specific species of invertebrates are more prolific, like we talk about the Mother's Day hatch on the Arkansas, things like that, uh, both region, um, altitude, and most importantly, each specific lake or stream will have its own hatch cycle. And so there are times, you know, like, for instance, when animals are in rut, you know, we know kind of when they're in rut. But if the temperatures are off, if we've had, you know, a major uh, winter as far as, uh, you know, snowpack, if we got a lot of bottom release dams that are kicking out lots of lots of cold water, um, you know, all those types of things, all that stuff varies dramatically. And, and usually what I like to say, I mean, you know me, uh, Chad, being an entomologist, I can sit there and, and rip off um, all kinds of important and fancy uh, words in Latin. But as I always say, trout don't speak Latin or other fish don't speak Latin. But I will say this is that 
if you're an observer, you're going to see a lot more stuff than you would expect to see. And that said, there are numerous mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies, and, of course, midges that, that come off all the way, sometimes through the winter, but all the way through basically mid-October through even mid-November as far as that goes. And I can talk about some of the specific ones and more common names, but that's the big thing is we never know, Chad. We don't know really when things are going to be hatching and coming off because things change every year and specifically to the water that you're fishing. Every river is different. The Pooter is different. The Colorado is different. And that's all based on flows, snowpack, and rain. That's the big thing. So I don't know. I probably didn't answer your question specifically, <laughs> but that's kind of what goes on. You well, you answered really my question honestly, and that's what's important. And, you know, Nate Zelinsky in the first hour uh, of the show, same thing. You can't predict it. You can't say what's going to happen. You have to to go with an open mind. So the next thing becomes, if I'm a fly fisherman, I just heard the bug guy tell me that, and I show up and I'm going to pick a random canyon, say Cheeseman Canyon. Uh, so sure. what you're telling me is I need to be very observant as to either the feeding behavior of my trout. Are they sipping emergers? Are they hitting dries? Are they staying down and feeding in known lanes? Uh, or am I looking for bugs themselves? Because one of the axioms in fall is, is follow the bait and you'll find the fish. But the problem is you don't know sure. which bait it is. Are they on shad or are they on smelt or are they on crayfish? Same thing with the trout in the river. Is he, is he eating you know, stoneflies, mayflies, uh, caddisflies, or all of the above. So you're telling me I just need to watch the the fish, gauge them, and go that route. Yeah, deciphering fish feeding behavior, insect activity, and you you nailed it. Because uh, I and I know that, uh, like I said, you're you're an extremely uh, diverse fisherman, and I've seen you cast, and I've seen you fly fish, and I've seen your conventional fishing. And you're better at all that stuff than me when it comes down to it. You're very good at all that stuff. Well, thank and, you very and that's much. right, buddy. The, the thing is, is that you have to decipher fish. You know, are they porpoising? Are they sipping? Well, we know that that's the mergers. Are, they, are you seeing a big hatch coming off and yet you see no surface activity? Well, what does that tell you? Maybe we need to go subsurface and we need to target either pupa or larva or, or possibly emergers just down below. Are they busting the top? You know, uh, right now the grasshoppers are still really busy and the grasshoppers are going to be moving around and inadvertently uh, flying into the water because, you know, they're not adroit at flying. But a trout knows that that's a big meal. And all the way through October, uh, depending on each season, you know, we we're, we're kind of we kind of had a delayed terrestrial season through the whole state this year. And really, it took a long time to pick up and generally about. A month ago, the terrestrials really would have been happening. And I'm talking about uh, beetles, grasshoppers, ants, those type of patterns. And you know what? It's still busting right now, and it's going to go all the way through through mid-October uh, easily. And, you know, and that's one reason, Chad, I'm not a big fan of hatch charts. I don't know if, if your listeners know what those are, but they're put out generally by the fly fishing companies about which flies you should use at a specific time on a specific river and when it's all said and done chad you know what those are about as useless as you know me you know you know whatever i mean you know climbing a 14er i mean it's just if they're useless you are the one that has to go out there as a fly fisher and kind of figure it out and be an observer and and watch that that activity as far as you were as, as you mentioned what's going on at that river at that time. And that's what's going to make you successful, and that's what's going to give you production, 100%.
Yeah, I agree with that. The the one thing I will throw out is I think it's important to know potentially if there's any notable bugs in, in a river you're going to. For instance, if I'm going sure. to the Roaring Fork or Colorado River below Gore Canyon, I might be really focused on a big stonefly where I might otherwise not be considering those if I'm in, say, Clear yes. Creek that has a much smaller stonefly. But I have to know they're there in the first place. Uh, we went with John Ewart, who's a fisheries biologist that manages for Colorado Parks and Wildlife that manages yeah. that section of Colorado, and we sampled there. And uh, I was very surprised at the diversity of the bug life and the size of the bug life that was in there. Um, yeah. You know, a, a big deal. You and I sampled together up in Rocky Mountain National Park, and we scooped through just the grass on the edge of one of the lakes there and took yes. an overwhelming number of bugs out of the water in one net scoop. Um, and that's a, such an important point. You know, I always say we can do all the classes, we can read all the books, we can talk about you know how good of a caster you are you can buy 700 hundred dollar waders and a really expensive rod but ultimately if you can't take it take the time and buy a 15 dollars sane and spend that exorbitant amount of money and and actually do a little collecting yep. um most of what we teach and we talk about chad really becomes kind of useless i mean the big thing is to go and find out for yourself and it's not just about turning over a rock you're going to get a few things but if you really want to know what's in a river and you want to match the hats you want to match the invertebrates that are in an aquatic ecosystem you need to uh, actually do a little bit of sampling and it should be fun not intimidating it should be something that enlightens you but doesn't stress you out because even if you don't know what the fancy names are you can at least look at what you collected and say you know what that's probably a caddis and you go to your caddis box which should be organized into different aquatic orders, mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies, midges, frestrels, things like that, and then make a, a, an informed decision because there's very little luck, in, I think, in any type of outdoor activity, whether it's you know hunting, conventional fishing, or fly fishing. It's going out and doing sampling. That's a great point that you brought up well and, and and i agree with you on the very little luck part and for me all i have to do is match the shape profile and size i i don't i don't have it doesn't have to be called a mayfly just because um you know exactly. it, it, it look if the nymph has got the right shape size and, and color uh you're going to get in the ballpark with that and uh i think that's yeah. really important I, and, and for me sampling brings out kind of like my inner kid i got kicked out of school as a fourth grader one time i got sent home from school because i came in smelling like a pond because i'd been wading around in the pond up to my <laughs> knees sampling uh catching minnows and uh and right. my yeah. mom rest her soul really wanted to ground me for getting kicked out of school but on the other hand she was happy that i was out <laughs> sampling minnows before school so uh old habits yeah. die hard but when when we've sampled the times that i have actually taken Taking some effort to sample either in Colorado River or the, or the lakes or or any other place that I've done that extensively in small creeks, uh, you'll find it's very eye opening in a lot of cases, um, and I think it, yeah. it helps. Let me ask you this: before we've got a couple of minutes left, and I've got I'm, I'm something because people keep asking me, so I'm going to ask you from the entomologist standpoint. Fires, we've had fires, and now we're having floods. Uh, yeah. It's a standard process. It's gone through on Mother Nature for a million years. Yeah. It's effect on the bugs. We've got only a couple of minutes, but it's effect on the bugs. Uh, what do you see? Because I was just in the Poudre River. Uh, fish appeared to be doing fine. I did not find a tremendous amount of bug life, and I couldn't tell if it was because yeah. they died off or I just wasn't looking in the right spot. Yeah, that's a great question, and, I'll, and I will just say, um, given the time that we have, uh, what happens uh, basically, if we get high amounts of sediment that get into the river, that actually affects the fish populations. It affects the gill structures of the of the aquatic invertebrates, the mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies, midges, particularly the stoneflies. 
And so what will happen, Chad, is we get a process called lamation, like the word laminate, like on your counter. And it starts to fill your river up with sandy bottoms because what happens is that cycle that you mentioned. So we get a fire, we lose all our ground cover, all that sediment gravel comes back into the river and it starts to turn a river, not into a place with lots of structure and rocks and you know structure better than anybody that's still important in the river. And you start ending up with these long three, four, five mile sandbars. that is not conducive to aquatic insect development or for trout, reproduction or even for habitat and so it's a it's a valid it's a valid thing i mean so you will definitely find a a reduction in what you're going to find as far as collecting and i will say that um one of the things that we do as entomologists is uh like particularly when i was at colorado state university uh studying entomology there is that we would go in after an event, whether it was a flood event, whether it was a fire event, and we would have previous studies and have looked at specimens we collected in previous years and then compare it after a fire or a flood. And I think probably the answer is not a big surprise, but after those events, things drop dramatically. So fires can be pretty devastating to our fisheries when it's all said and done. Well, there you go. That's from the man himself, and I agree with you. Flip side of it is one good hard spring runoff and flush a lot of that out of the river, uh, run it downstream, and uh, and that'll help it out a whole bunch. So, Robert, I appreciate you very much taking the time. Would love to have you on Fishful Thinker Television again. Always fun to talk to. If a guy wants to learn more about the bug guy, where would he do it? Well, uh, you can go to the the bugguy.com. My site is down right now this moment we're rebuilding it since i have classes that are listed from 2012 you can tell i'm very techy <laughs> right, right. Um, but otherwise um, i'll be at isc with you hopefully we'll be throwing some uh some some uh bugs into the into the tank and then i'll be in dallas in october and i'll be in chile um in patagonia in march uh with people down there but uh isc uh 6th through the 9th and i'll have my live stream and bugs for everybody to actually come out and see and i be i'll be honest with you even though it's something i do it's probably one of the biggest hits of the show is actually being able to come to the stream and see the bugs right there it's a it's a great thing so hope we can get people out there in january 6th through the 9th to, and come to the show excellent well i i agree with you i have fun at your uh, your thing so robert i appreciate that very much uh taking the time to call in and, and uh, stay in touch we'll see if we can get you on the show going forward Thank you, Chad. You take care, buddy. That's Robert Younghands, the bug guy, one of my favorite guys, great guy to fish with. Look him up. And uh, in the meantime, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. All right. Welcome back to the final segment of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. I'm Chad Lachance, and I've spent the last hour and 45 minutes filling in for Mr. Terry Wickstrom while he's traveling in Minnesota. They're doing some fishing. I know I've seen some pictures of walleyes and some pike and a few others that they've caught. I know he's uh, enjoying his trip, and we've had a great time here, but couple things. I wanted to reserve this last segment for stuff that I feel like is important to me. So we don't have any callers on this one, but one of them is um, uh, conservation is a big, giant thing for me. And the reason being is if people will conserve resources if they see value in it, and they need to see value in it. And I'm not a believer that just sitting back and watching the outdoors is how you see value. You need to participate in it. And and out, that's why outdoorsmen are the ultimate conservationists, in my opinion, and uh, in terms of everything from hands on the ground to the actual fundraising. And there's a lot of organizations out there that do a fantastic job of putting people together to do that. One of those organizations is Pheasants Forever. It's a, it's a organization.
organization that I've worked with for a long time, about 15 years. I've been doing their banquets. I've been emceeing their banquets. Uh, one of the reasons I like Pheasants Forever specifically as a conservation organization is a lot, the, the overwhelming majority of the funds that are raised locally stay locally. So when we talk about conservation, it could be anything from habitat improvement on, on land ownership. It could be access. It could be working with Colorado Parks and Wildlife on the, on the uh, walk-in access program. And it also is recruitment. It's bringing kids into the sport. And that takes volunteers, and it takes money, and it takes corporate donations. And all of those things are raised at these fundraising banquets. And they do them around the state. But on September 18th, the South Metro Denver Pheasants Forever uh, Banquet, I believe it's their 21st annual, will take place. Um, They're huge events. It's a really fun event all the way around because there'll be something like 500 people there. There's everything from raffles to uh, live auctions to silent auctions to games, all sorts of games that you can do and try to win prizes as well. And most importantly, again, all the proceeds go to the initiatives that Pheasants Forever has in the Colorado area. So... Um, it's, it's a wonderful event. I have a great time. Normally I am see those events, but I'll be out of town this week and, or that week, I should say September 18th. In this particular case, the, the CEO of Pheasants Forever is going to be there. Mr. Howard Vincent. I've met him personally. I worked an event with him personally. He's a great guy. Uh, a couple of key points about this banquet that's coming up, and yes, they do still have seats, and and it is uh, in South Denver at the Lone Tree Plaza. Uh, they do have seats available if you want to go to southmetropf.org. That's southmetropf.org if you want to go to this event. But every eligible youth, depending on age, will receive a free BB gun, and that's because of they believe in getting kids involved in the outdoors. So I don't know the exact details on the age on that, but I'd be willing to bet if a, if a nine-year-old and a parent show up, you're probably going to get a BB gun as far as that goes. Also, all first responders will be honored at this event, which seems appropriate considering uh, today's date being the 20th anniversary of September 11th. All first responders will be entered into a free raffle for military, fire, police, paramedic, and they'll have a chance to win a Beretta A300 semi-automatic shotgun uh, just for being a first responder that showed up there. But if you want more details on all of the above, again, southmetropheasantsforever.org, they have a pre-banquet sweepstakes. You can win, uh, I believe it's a Benelli shotgun there, the Montefeltro, the gun of the year. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. There's, it's, they're fun. Dogs available typically. There'll be dogs available for, for auction there as well, uh, hunting dogs. But they're a really neat deal. But most importantly, the money that, that they raise goes towards uh, Colorado area for, for, the, for recruiting youth in Colorado or habitat improvement in Colorado. And as I said earlier in the show, Pheasant habitat is good habitat for everything that lives out there, whether it be pheasant or quail or rabbits or any of that stuff. Pheasant habitat is good habitat. So look them up, southmetropf.org. And if you're not a Denver person, you're hearing this from somewhere else, look up your local Pheasants Forever chapter. It would be very important. Those guys do a fantastic job, and we love to support them. With that, the last couple of minutes of the show, I just alluded to um, small game. Small game is in my mind, the equivalent of bluegills in the South or brand new stalker trout up here. Small game is how everybody gets involved or a lot of people get involved with big, 
with hunting in general. We see all the the hunting shows on TV and they're all shooting 10 point bucks and giant elk and blah, blah, blah. That's fantastic. But you know what tastes really good? Cottontail rabbits. And cottontail rabbits are available all over the state of Colorado from people that are just barely rural, uh, and I mean barely on the outskirts of town, all the way up to farm country, all the way up to sagebrush country, everywhere in between. Uh, Cottontail rabbits have a big season. They reproduce like crazy. They have liberal harvests, and they are absolutely delicious. In Europe, people eat tons of rabbit. In this country, for some reason, we don't. One little tidbit, though, you need to wait until after the first hard freeze. You don't want to be in the woods looking for rabbits right now or in the field looking for rabbits right now. We need a good hard freeze. After that, they are one of the most delicious things you can eat. It's very much like a white, delicate meat, no different than a chicken breast. And if you treat it the same, you will end up with a delicious harvest. Uh, squirrels, another one. Everyone's like, oh, you must be a redneck. You're eating squirrels. Well, I'll tell you what. If you like dark meat turkey, you'll like squirrels. There's no trick to preparing squirrels. Same thing. You can harvest them with an air rifle, with uh, with a regular rifle, with a shotgun. A twenty two works fine. Um, there's almost no barriers to entry. You can hunt them in the national forest. You can hunt them in the state wildlife areas on the river bottoms. You might have an uncle that's got two acres with some trees. Uh, whatever. Squirrels are absolutely delicious. We we typically brine them, braise them, and shred the meat, and it is absolutely delicious. And if I served it to you, you would think I was serving you dark meat turkey. That's about what it's like. The last. I'll throw out quick is Eurasian doves. They're an invasive species in Colorado. They're perfect for an air rifle. You can call them in using a dove call. They'll come to a call fairly easy. They're not typically bright uh, birds, and they're easy to harvest with an air rifle. They're bigger than a morning dove. They're more plentiful than a morning dove, and they are absolutely delicious. delicious. Again, that's a local uh, local option for you. In all cases, clean and chill them as soon as you can. Uh, I use the, the replaceable blade knives like we were talking about. Work great for small game. Clean them, get them chilled down. Uh, really, really important. And then when you get home, break them down like you would a chicken and, uh, and you'll do really good. Last little tidbit, if you're going big game hunting, be prepared for hares, grouse, and squirrels. And also, since I'm a fisherman, brook trout. So, with that, we've wound up this edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. I always appreciate the opportunity to come in and guest host. If you want any information about what, what we're up to, that's at Fishful Thinker on social media, particularly on Facebook and Instagram. Also, our uh, YouTube channel at Fishful Thinker. We'd really appreciate you checking that out. We put a lot of effort into that. And um, I want to give a special thanks to Terry Wickstrom and the crew here at AM 1600 Denver for letting me come in. If you guys want to keep listening, up next, you're going to have Notre Dame and Toledo for college football. And with that, I'm signing off. This has been Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600.